Tonight we will encounter all sorts of wonderful things, a burning bush, a staff that turns into a serpent, a leprous hand that's not a leprous hand, Nile water turned to blood. I mean, there, there's a lot of fun things we get to engage in the scriptures tonight, and all of it talks about how great our God is, and it says a lot about Jesus. So all of that said, let's pray again just for guidance and, uh, and, and focus tonight. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we look at Exodus 3 and part of Exodus 4, that you would allow this time to be as you have ordained, that it would, we would speak clarity of, of who you are, that we would come into a greater understanding of your will, that we would be brought into your will and your purposes. Lord, I pray that you would... Uh, equip us for a work of service, and that in this study we may be um, ready for, for a good work, that it's not just gaining head knowledge, but that our lives are in fact changed by the message that you bring. Lord, we love you, and we submit this time to you, and we pray these things uh, to Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 3. Exodus is largely a book of redemption. We've said that every week, and we'll probably say it every week. It's, it's largely a book of redemption. Chapter 2 covered about 80 years. Uh, the first chapter of Exodus covered a few hundred years. Chapter 2 covered 80, and the 80 years that it covered were, were Moses growing up, Moses murdering someone, Moses fleeing to Midian, Moses marrying Zipporah, shepherding the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, um, and about 40 years were spent growing up, and then 40 years were spent in Midian. So that's where the 80 comes from. So a brief recap, what does Moses' name mean? Drawn out. Okay, why is this significant? It is significant. Why? Yes. What are some other drawn-out things we've seen? We, we have seen other drawn-out things, <laughs> and they are... What was Moses drawn out of? The Nile. What else? Yes, out of Egypt. What else? What would he and the people of Israel be drawn out of later on in Exodus? Slavery and then the wilderness and then the Red Sea. There's a lot of drawn out. And then what does Revelation 18 say? What does God say in Revelation 18 to his people? Come out of my people. We, in a like manner, are being drawn out. So, Moses' name actually means drawn out, and there's a lot of significance there. What caused Moses, what was Moses' mom's name? Well, see, he was really paying attention. Jochebed, okay. And his sister, what was his sister's name? Say that again? Okay. Uh, what caused Moses' mom and sister to act as they did? Yeah, they acted in what? In faith. 
And Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes through hearing. So evidently, their actions here weren't just that of, oh, he's a cute baby, let's, let's save this one. It, it, it went beyond just a maternal instinct to being an act of faith. And for it to be an act of faith, according to our Bible, she must have heard from God. Her, her and her daughter must have heard from the Lord. So um, what are some similarities between Moses floating in the river and us and our sin? Helpless, can't get out on our own. Anything else? Yeah, no in the ark, little baby ark covered in pitch, which means atonement. I don't know if y'all knew that. And what was the river a place of? Death. So you have imminent death and a place of death unless acted upon by an outside force. That's us and our sin. Moses could not save himself or make himself more useful for God's kingdom on his own. That's us and our sin. That's why Exodus is largely a book of redemption. So we closed last week with this really sweet encouragement of a relational and a personal God who hears and he remembered and he saw and he knew. So he's not just some disconnected, non-relational judgment giver from a distant throne. He's very relational with his people. He's, he's seen as a, uh, a shepherd who, who takes care of the young ones. I mean, the relational character of our God should really blow our minds. And it's not common. It's not, it's not normal. Most gods in other cultures who are lowercase g gods, not the God, are not like our God. He's altogether different. The King of kings and Lord of lords, but also the good shepherd. Full of justice, full of wrath, but also full of mercy and full of love. And it's very complex, and we get to see all of it in the book of Exodus. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now Moses is enduring, this is, is this just a completely unique day for him, what he's doing? What is he doing? He's shepherding the flock. And what has he been doing for 40 years? Shepherding the flock. Has anyone worked at their work that they're at right now for more than 10 years? 20? 30? All right. Imagine 40 years. He's just doing the same thing he's been doing. It's not like this really unique day. So 40 years he's been doing what he's doing. And uh, it's, it's a normal day of work. And he's shepherding the flock. And we know that to the Egyptian shepherds are what? An abomination. And, and he used to be what? Yeah, a prince in, in the, the house of the Pharaoh. Trained in the works of the Egyptians and also full of good deeds. So it wasn't just head knowledge, but he was, he was doing things. And now he is an abomination to the Egyptians as he is in his 40th year of shepherding the flocks of Jethro. If you're looking for a band name, I think the flocks of Jethro is a great band name. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, as he shepherds the flocks, he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. And Horeb is either, it's either the same as Sinai or it's the same mountain range as Sinai. So what do we know about Mount Sinai? Yeah, the Ten Commandments, where the law is given. Shaking, thunder, peals of thunder, lightning, smoke. Pretty crazy. What else happens at Mount Sinai? Later on, down the road. All right, we'll come back to that. Um, 
So Horeb is either the same mountain as Sinai or the same mountain range as Sinai. Either way, Horeb, Sinai, great significance. Don't miss it. Look at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, briefly, uh, some believe this, some don't. Either way, this is significant because we're going to see the Lord talking. But some say that when it says an angel of the Lord, it's an angel of the Lord. And then other theologians, some believe this, some don't say it. When it says the angel of the Lord, it is in fact Jesus. And that is brought on by a verse out of Malachi 3 verse 1. So the angel of the Lord means Jesus. I'm not saying that as a full-on fact that we're adopting. I'm just saying we're about to hear from the Lord and he's appearing as the angel. So when the angel came to the tent with Abraham and Sarah and made lunch, some believe that was Jesus having lunch with, with Abraham that day. Um, don't get too confused by it. It's not a major point. But this is the angel, which is somehow more significant than just an angel. I really hope that wasn't just a confusing tangent. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Normal day of work is changing a little bit. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, there is, we are about to just dive into a huge pool of imagery and symbolism and foreshadowing. There is so much in Exodus, particularly this chapter and the, and the few after this, full of imagery and symbolism. So, um, this is uh, fire, first of all, is a theme of God's presence throughout the book of Exodus and actually the rest of Scripture. Fire is a theme of God's presence. Where else do we see it in Exodus? Yeah, the pillar of fire that led them. Okay. What is it that makes this place holy ground? God's presence. That's really important. It's not just that he stumbled upon ground that was already holy. The reason that this is holy ground is because of God's presence. The presence of God is what makes it holy. Whether, it is, whether it's a, a place or a person or a people, the thing that makes it holy is God's presence. Um, God's presence is essential. What this tells us is that we don't just need what he gives. We need him. Does that make sense? So we don't just go to him for something he can give us. We want him. The point of the gospel is God. It's not just repent and follow Jesus, or it's not just you need forgiveness of your sin, and it's not just to get to heaven. The point of that whole thing is God. There's a guy who wrote a book called God is the Gospel because sometimes we, we stop at you have forgiveness of your sins or we stop at you have repented. But the point of all of it is to lead us to God. And so the thing that makes anything holy is God's presence. So rather than just needing what he gives, we need God. In the burning bush, there's lots of symbolism and foreshadowing. So we're just going to kind of dive into it. While fire is a sign of God's presence, does anyone know what it's also a sign of? Of God's what? His wrath and his judgment. Okay. Hebrews 12, 29 refers to God as a consuming fire. Now what's happening with the bush? Okay. 
So how can God manifest himself in a bush without consuming it by fire? He's God. What else? Maybe. Mercy. Okay. So, so what do we know about the bush right now? It's on fire. What else? It's not burning up, not being consumed. What else? Where is it? It's on a mountain in a desert. And who's speaking from it? Okay. A.W. Pink states that grace reigns not at the expense of righteousness, but through it. And he's citing Romans 5.21. Just turn over to Romans 5 for a minute. I'm going to read actually 5:14 through 21 and we'll just take in this scripture in light of where we're at in Exodus. <laughs> Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more have, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the many one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous." Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through, Christ, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, my question is this. Is there any other, other, is there, is there any other instance where God's judgment was completely poured out without completely consuming the sacrifice? To a point where that sacrifice no longer existed. Cross. Okay. Let's look at this. Jesus. Death could not hold him down, right? What happened three days later? He rose again. Now, let's look at this. Um, Moses was looking upon what was at least a representation of how Christ became a curse. Our propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Wrath absorber. So the wrath of God was poured out on Christ completely on the cross. Three days later, he conquers death. So um, he was not fully consumed. Rather, he conquered death for us. So in this burning bush, we see symbolism, imagery, and foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who, though God's wrath, fire is representative of wrath and judgment, though it was poured out completely on Christ, he became a curse for us on the tree. Um, 
He was not completely consumed because three days later he actually conquered death. Death did not conquer Christ. And so there's something in this where we're seeing a picture of Jesus. Does that make sense? Lots of imagery and symbolism. Anybody have any questions about that? Cool, because I don't really want to answer any. Um, It's also interesting to note uh, that Moses, who is himself a type of Christ, as we just read in Romans 5, um, was not to be a deliverer of Israel until he had been rejected by Israel. How was Moses rejected by Israel? Forty years earlier, what had he done? Say that again. He killed an Egyptian for doing what? Good gravy. Yes, yeah. He went out to look upon his people, and an Egyptian was striking a Hebrew. And so he acted too early and decides, I'm going to redeem my people, strikes down the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. And in fact, the next day, two Hebrew brothers were fighting, and he goes out and he says, uh, he says, why are you fighting? And they say, what are you going to do? Kill us like you did the Egyptian? He's rejected by them. He flees and he's in Midian. So much like Christ, he couldn't become a deliverer, one who would deliver Israel out of bondage until he was in fact rejected by Israel. So all of this is significant of, and foreshadowing of what would happen with Jesus Christ as he could conquer sin and death on the cross. I mean, it's full of symbolism and imagery. It's, it's awesome. We could really spend a lot more time here, a lot more time here but we won't. Uh, Look at, well, we'll spend a little more time there. Deuteronomy 4.20. Turn over to Deuteronomy 4.20. Sounds like the kids are having a bit more fun than us. We may have to give them a run for the money. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.20 says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. So it's stating that Israel suffered in the iron furnace of Egypt's affliction. So, in a like manner, the bush also represents Israel, who, though held to the fire, was not consumed. Did Israel die off completely? Were all the firstborn killed in Israel, or killed of Israel in Egypt? No. That they were, they were saved. So though they went through the affliction, they were not completely consumed. This should also remind us of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, there's all of this imagery in this burning bush that's not being consumed that has so much to do with affliction and God's wrath and forgiveness and redemption and propitiation. It's quite beautiful. Who knows the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Fantastic. They would not bowed down to King Nebuchadnezzar's idol that he built, saying he built this tall golden statue that was like him and said, everyone's going to bow down. And they said, no, we're not. And so he said, okay, I'm going to put you in the furnace. I'm going to heat it up. And it was so hot that the servants who threw them in melted and died. When you melt, you die. They go hand in hand. And so, um, and then he looks in and there's someone, there's four in the furnace and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though in this furnace of affliction, did not die because who was with them? Yes. And because he was with them, that made that place what? Yes. Okay. Struck down, but not destroyed. Just as God was in the burning bush, so he remained with Israel, and so he remains with us. Romans 8 talks about how we are more than conquerors 
struck, struck down but not destroyed. That's because God is with us in the same way he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the same way he was with Christ, in the same way he was with Moses, in the same way he was with Israel and their affliction in Egypt. It's really, really quite a beautiful story that is completely true and breathed out by God. Do you see any significance in the fact that God chose to dwell in a bush rather than elsewhere? How else could he have dwelled? What would you have chosen? Something giant, shiny, and magnificent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A bush in the back desert at Mount Horeb. It could have been a great cypress, um, but, but in fact, it's quite contrary to, to what we would expect. Uh, when he saw the bush burning, it's very unlikely that he thought, oh, I think God's going to talk from, to me from that. Um, you see what I'm saying? It seems almost contrary. Now look at verse 6 in Exodus 3. And he said, this is God speaking out of the bush. He just said, this is holy ground. Take off your sandals. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, this is very, very significant because Moses is here being identified with Abraham. The last time we saw this was in reference to Joseph, who died how many years ago? Over 430, at least. And so, uh, hundreds of years have passed since anyone has been identified like this. And so, uh, Moses is being identified with Abraham. So, though he seems very separated, he's not even a real Israelite, it doesn't look like anymore. He's not even a real Egyptian, it doesn't look like anymore. It's like he's a Midianite, a Jethroite, and he's far away, and he's not with his people. His people are being afflicted over here. He's over here. But when God comes to him, God says, no, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, and I'm the one who is calling you to redeem my people. So though he seems very separated from Israel, he is in fact he, in fact, has been chosen by God to recount the covenant promises and lead Israel out of bondage. Now look at verses 7 through 9. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with, with, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So to be clear, what is the current condition of Israel? They're slaves, utter oppression, what else? Bad, bad, bad circumstances. Greatly oppressed, they're enslaved. Now remember, we're not just going to use Exodus every week to compare our circumstances to their circumstances. 
But rather what we're doing and what, what I believe God is aiming to accomplish here is to say, look at Exodus, look at the Israelite circumstances in Exodus and consider your sin. So my question is, how does this inform your circumstance under sin? God knows our sin. What else? He hears our cries in the midst of sin. What else? We can't deliver ourselves from it? Yes. Yes. Viewed in terms of a heritage, not the sins we've committed. What else? What about just the sin? How does the sin compare directly to the oppression? Darkness that could be felt. Yeah, bondage and enslaved to the sin. What else? I think your affliction turns your heart to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And again, just to be clear, when we, cry out, when we cry out to God, what happens? He hears us. This is really, really important. Um, one commentator said, the very lusts of the flesh are just as merciless as the Egyptian taskmasters of old. What that means is that there are certain important realities about sin being revealed to us here. Sin is not something that's actually fun and fulfilling with the unsavory byproduct of making you feel guilty. A lot of times we view sin as that, like, it's going to be great, um, at least I'll feel better for the time, but there's this small, unsavory byproduct of feeling guilty. It goes beyond that. Sin brings very real pain. Sin brings very real sorrow, mainly because it separates us from God. What would make us holy? God's presence. Sin separates you from God. There's a problem. There has to we can't fix the problem on our own. Sin burns like fire. Sin oppresses like bitter and cruel slavery. Sin will lead to very real suffering. So this oppression that they're experiencing under the bondage of slavery in Egypt, it very much informs our bondage to, to sin. Very real pain, very real oppression, very bitter. Look at verse 10. There's a major transition here. So God is speaking to Moses and God says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. What if that were you? Normal day of work, been doing the same thing for 40 years. Oh, look at burning bush. Oh, wait, that's God's voice. I'm going to hide my face. I can't see him. Oh, you're going to do what? You're going to, I'm the guy. Okay, fantastic. This, this would freak anybody out. That, that's all there is to it. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. How long have they been there? What's going on there? Yeah, it's really bad, and it's been really bad for a long time. So the idea of this guy who has been separated from the house of Pharaoh, who has been despised by the house of Pharaoh, who Pharaoh at one time wanted to kill 
who is now in the land of the Midianites and shepherding Jethro's flocks, you're going to be the guy to lead them, all couple million of them, out of Egypt. You're just going to go ask nicely, what's it going to be like? Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. What does that mean? Made holy, set apart. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So here we see the call of Moses. It's, it's a pretty big moment. Now, notice what God says. I mean, just, I, mean I want to look at, at the very words that he uses. What does he say? He says, come now, I will send you. I mean, there's this picture of Come, I will send you. Come, now's the time. Like 40 years ago wasn't the time. 20 years ago wasn't the time. 10 years ago wasn't the time. God is saying, come. This is the time that I have chosen to call you out to redeem your people. So there's a picture here that um, 40 years have passed and, and God won't be rushed. It'll, it'll all happen according to his timing, though his timing does not make perfect sense in our own minds. Um, this was the time necessary for Israel's affliction and for Moses' preparation, for 40 years, he has been prepared in Midian. Um, and Israel has been in anguish. Uh, one guy cited that the children of Israel would now be in a condition to appreciate the promised inheritance. And I wonder if we ever give much thought to the, the reality that we're being prepared for an inheritance. What are some ways that we're being prepared to receive the inheritance? And how does it compare to them appreciating a land flowing with milk and honey? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What else? How else? Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's just unmatched beauty of knowing we're being prepared for an eternal existence in the presence of God. I mean, I just, we, we don't live in circumstances in our life that give much room towards that kind of thought unless we are vigilant about it. We don't, I just don't think that we think enough about the fact that we will be in the presence of God eternally and we're being prepared for that. And we have a real inheritance in Christ that we will receive that will blow our minds beyond anything we could even muster or think up ourselves. And it should affect the way that we live our lives now. And as, especially as we look on Israel's affliction and the things that they were going through, they were certainly being prepared. I mean, imagine that horrible oppression that they were having where they cry out to God and God knows that they have, they have 
taskmasters that have been set over them to oppress them bitterly and afflict them bitterly. And his plan for them is this land flowing with milk and honey where they'll be free. Like not only are you not under the bondage of slavery, but a land flowing with milk and honey, that's abundant blessing that they can't even conceive of. The thoughts of Goshen are gone. Remember when Joseph went to Goshen and he brought his family and it was this sort of protected land. And those thoughts are, are th- that sort of a life is, is not the same as what it is now because they became too many and they were a threat to the Pharaoh. And so they're being prepared just as we're being prepared for a promised inheritance. And God has revealed to Moses that he will be the one to go to Pharaoh. And again, how does Moses respond? Really? Who am I? How is that going to happen? I mean, he's baffled by the thought of it. Now, aside from a feeble and seemingly unwilling Moses, how could God have redeemed Israel just for a moment? What really could he have done? Yeah, something, something shiny. It's got to be shiny if it's Patrick's. Yeah, yeah I mean, he, he could have come in a, in a show of his might uh, with a host of angels with explosions, fire, a bold and unshakable warrior. But instead, he shows up in a bush to speak to Moses. Again, it's very, very contrary. This to me is a very real picture of ministry, that God chooses a feeble means like human ministry to bring about divine salvation. That each of us, if we're saved... If we have experienced redemption in Jesus Christ, it came about by some bonehead sharing the gospel with you. It's amazing. That's a, that's a divine working of eternal significance by a feeble, common, fragile person that was probably a lot like Moses. Like, you sure you want me to tell him? Yeah, you tell him. But tell him what I told you to tell him. Don't you tell him what you want to tell him. Now, uh, Yet many of us still respond like Moses, even when he calls us to do something. Look at verses three, uh, 13 through 18. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is an I am statement. He's saying, Yahweh sent you. We'll talk about that more in just a second. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me, Moses, to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So what's the aim of God bringing his people out of the oppression of slavery in Egypt? What's the aim? Worship. Why does God deliver you from the oppression of sin? Worship him. It's the exact same. Um, so 
What we're seeing here is that apparently the 80-year-old Moses is not quite as eager as the 40-year-old Moses. And in verse 14, God says, look, I'm going to, you tell them Yahweh sent you. When we use, like there's a song we sing here, Yahweh, you alone are worthy of all that I am, all that I am, Yahweh, beautiful is your name, beautiful is your name, Yahweh, wonderful is your name, wonderful is your name, Yahweh. That name, I am, the I am phrases are significant. And what it means is this, there's four distinctive things that are being communicated just in him saying, I am that I am. See, Paul was able to say, I am what I am because of the grace of Christ, but he could not say I am that I am because God, the only eternal existent, never has not been, always will be, can say I am that I am. And it's different than I am what I am in this instant, in this manner. One, God is self-existent. What does self-existent mean? He doesn't need us to exist? We'll go with that. I like that. God is the creator and sustainer. God is immutable. That's the third thing. What that means is that he is not in the process of becoming different than what he is. It's not like God was created by something and is starting out and is going through a process of sanctification. We're in a process of sanctification. Our God is not. He's not becoming something that he isn't already. He is called immutable. Hebrews 13, 8 talks of Jesus Christ in the same manner. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, immutable. And God is eternal in existence. So when he says, I am sent you, he says, the God who is self-existent, the God who is the creator and the sustainer, the God who is immutable, never changing into something that he's not, the God that is eternal in existence, that's who sent you. It's a major, major statement. And really, if you take all this in, it seems quite ridiculous. Really. Look at the bird's eye view, the big picture. Like, when we're studying our Bibles, import your, import your senses. You know, what does this sound like? What does this look like? What does this smell like? The king of Egypt is going to be appealed to in the name of the Lord. God, always eternal in existence, never wasn't, always will be, self-existent, unchanging, is identifying himself with a nation of slaves. Do you see how contrary this looks? God is identifying himself with a nation of slaves and is appealing to their enslaver who thinks he is God. So the whole thing looks quite ridiculous. God is making an appeal as the one who is the God of the nation of slaves to the ones who are the taskmasters over the slaves, and oh yeah, this nation here thinks, the, the Pharaoh thinks he's God. So rather than coming in as king of kings, lord of lords, smashing of thunder, fire, explosions, might, he, I am the Lord who is the Lord of the nation of the enslaved ones. And that's how the appeal is going to be made. Turn to 1 Corinthians one twenty. First Corinthians 1, verse 20, and then verse 27. Verse 20 says, Where is the one who is wise? 
Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So in our worldliness, we would say, this isn't looking good. You're coming as the God of the enslaved nation. Don't you want to be the God of the free nation or the God of the mighty nation or the God of the strong nation? But you're coming as God of the enslaved nation and I'm making an appeal to one who thinks he's God. And then in verse 27, it says, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to, cha- to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, like a nation of slaves. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When this is all said and done, no one boasts except in the Lord. No one's going to boast in Israel, their nation of slaves. No one's going to boast in Moses. He's a fragile, common wimp, as we're about to see. No one's going to boast in Aaron, because he was utilized by God to speak only of God as God saw fit. Only bo- the only boasting that will be done will be in the Lord. And all of the works that are about to be done in Exodus will be so that we will know that he is God. Look at verses 19 through 22. This is where it really gets crazy. He says, so you're going to go and you're going to do this, Moses. And here's a little encouragement. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. All right. I mean, it just sounds crazy. If you really import your senses and take in the the scenario here, this sounds crazy. But look at the crazy certainty of God's language yet the unlikely nature of how things will play out. I mean, just go back and look at in verse 10. Come, I will send you. Verse 12, I will be with you. Verse 15, I am to be remembered. Verse 17, I promise that I will bring you up. Verse 18, they will listen to your voice and you shall go to the king of Egypt. Verse 19, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by mighty hand. Verse 20, I will stretch out my hand. Verse 20, I will strike Egypt. Verse 20, I will do these things. Verse 21, I will give this people favor in your sight. And when you go, you shall not go empty. And then verse 22, you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So saith the Lord. That is some serious certainty that God is proclaiming to Moses so that he will go. I mean, nothing's even happened yet. He's still in Midian. He still has a flock right next to him in the desert with the bush that's burning where he's hearing the Lord. That's the scenario. He's saying this is all about to happen. It's going to be the most amazing thing that the world has seen almost to date. Possibly. The contrary kingdom. So he tells him, go tell Pharaoh to let you go, but he won't. Unless he's compelled by mighty hand, which he will be. And after you do, I'll give you favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and you're going to plunder Egypt. What do you think of when you hear the word plunder? Take whatever you want, just throw down, just, just 
violently almost. Just, I'm going to take everything. No, no, no. Your women will plunder them. And they will do so by way of asking. This is so contrary. How are you going to get all the gold? This gold and silver would actually be the gold and silver used to build the temple. It was Egyptian gold and silver that's so great. And how did you get it? Did you kill them? Did you slaughter them? No, our women asked for it. This is so contrary. You'll get it by way of asking. Now look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Moses is really starting to get on my nerves. He's starting to sound like a real whiner. And he sort of reminds me of myself. But his concern stems from the fact that Pharaoh's Egyptians were known for their eloquent and their powerful speech. Pharaoh's Egyptians who were in his court, they're known for their eloquent and powerful speech. And I just very briefly, a lot of excuses that I hear, especially from just other Christian men mainly, are I'm not a talker or I'm not a reader. And I just want to encourage everyone here, we should all be talkers and readers. God's revealed himself in a breathed out word. We should all be readers. The Bible is really important. So I'm not a reader, doesn't fly. Maybe you don't read a lot of other books, but at the very least you need to read this one. And I'm not a talker. God says, go and tell. The, the great, go, make disciples, go, tell everyone. If you've been entrusted with the gospel, that means you've got to go tell the gospel. You've got to share it. Not just your version, but, but, but exactly as I told you. So I'm not a reader and I'm not a talker, just doesn't fly. We should all be readers. At minimum this, we should all be talkers at minimum this is who Jesus is. You need to repent of your sin. And this is how. All of us are readers. All of us are talkers. Look at verse 2. That's really brief. We could go into that for another hour, but we won't. Look at verse 2 through 9. Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? <laughs> it almost sounds like God's like, okay, what's in your hand? And he looks down, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. And it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. It's funny. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand, and he caught it and became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. That's a pretty snazzy trick, right? Like, you'd have to pay attention at least. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak. It says, and he put his hand in his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his was leprous like snow. That would freak you out, right? Then God said, put it back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. When he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Pretty neat. Verse 8, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to you the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So three amazing little tricks. And apparently, true faith is grabbing the snake by the tail. So to close, I actually brought some snakes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, true faith is grabbing the snake by the tail. Uh, so consider the three signs that, that God has given. First, uh, each, each of these things reveals God's power. Turning the staff into the serpent back into the staff shows God's power over creatures. Turning the healthy hand into the leper's hand back into the healthy hand shows God's power over people and health. And turning the Nile water into blood shows God's power over nature. 
Now look at verses 10 through 12. The point is God's power, not Moses' tricks. Look at verse 10 through 12. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Again, he knows that the magicians are eloquent. Either in the past or since you have spoken your word, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I'll be with your mouth. I'll make your mouth holy. And teach you what you will speak. Consider the gravity of God saying, I will be with your mouth. When you doubt yourself, when you hear God's call in your life and you doubt yourself, just hear him saying to Moses, I'll be with your mouth. You seem really concerned about even the words you speak. I'll be with your mouth, with your hand, I'll be with your ear, whatever. God goes to that distance to equip his saints for the work of ministry that he sees fit at the time he sees fit. I'll be with your mouth and I'll teach you what to say. Look at verses 13 through 17. But he said, oh, Lord, please send someone else. He's out of excuses. I can't do it. I don't know. They won't listen. They won't believe. I'm not eloquent. And then God's like, I'm taking care of it, taking care of it, taking care of it. And finally, he just says, how about you just send someone else? He's totally out of excuses. And he just throws sort of a Hail Mary there. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And look at this mercy here. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth. Listen to this. And you, whiner, shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. Excuses are done. I gave you Aaron. I'll be with both your mouths. I'll teach you both what to say. Don't forget your staff. Let's go. That's what's happening here. He runs out of excuses. God very mercifully gives Moses Aaron. There's something to be said here about plurality. There's a wisdom about them that will be greater. There's an accountability about them that will be greater. In ancient Egypt, um, in, in the Pharaoh's court, there was a high official called the mouth of the king. So it's interesting what God puts in place. Because when they go to talk to Pharaoh, there will be someone called the mouth of the king. He's a high official whose job was to mediate between the god Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And the way that he would mediate, interestingly, is he would speak Pharaoh's words unaltered. You don't give your own version of what Pharaoh said. You say exactly what the Pharaoh said. You are the mouth of the king. So Pharaoh, who thinks he's God, has someone who speaks on behalf of God Pharaoh to people Egypt, and he's supposed to speak only what the Pharaoh says, which is interesting because that's what Aaron's going to do. It's pretty cool, actually. God will trump their mouth of the king with his own with feeble Moses and now glad Aaron, who is supposed to speak only what God says. This is very important. Aaron must, in a like manner, do the work of a prophet, which is to speak to others that which God has already revealed. In 1 Timothy 4.16, it says, it's to a young pastor named Timothy, and it gives us this priority of what pastors should do. 
And the pastor is setting an example for the flock. And so it's what all God's people should ultimately do. And it's you don't just speak whatever you feel like or your version of this. You speak what the Lord says. You don't skip over parts of it. You don't only focus on certain parts of it. You speak what the Lord has revealed. It says, keep a close watch on your life and on the teaching. We want to be very careful, like Aaron would now have to be very careful, not to present his own view of God or his own version of God or an altered version of God. To, prevent, to, to present your version of God is to lead others into the same idolatry that you yourself have fallen into. Like, I've been guilty of this before in my life, where someone said something about my God that he had done in the Old Testament, and I hadn't read my Old Testament very much. I said, not my God. Uh-uh. No way. What I really meant was not my version of God. In this subtle, sad occurrence, I had fallen into idolatry, and I was really trying to lead someone else into my idolatry of just my version of God. My, my God would never do that. Oh, he did. Uh-oh. Then either I'm well, not either. I'm wrong at that point. I'm serving my version of God. And so it's interesting here because what Aaron's going to be called to, what Moses is going to be called to, is to speak what God has revealed. And that's what we do. Uh, We're called to be readers of the Word, heed the Word, and go speak God's truth as He has revealed it, not just our version of it or the parts we only like. That's why here you hear expository, just verse by verse, sometimes word by word, preaching, um, because we don't want to leave anything out, because God, in his breathed out word by Paul to Timothy, it says, keep a close watch on your life and on the teaching, because even the first generation after Christ, it said, watch your teaching. In, in the book of Acts, it says, look out, because they, they'll find teachers to suit their own passions. So the teaching can be skewed. The seed is not just pure because it's being scattered. So keep a close watch on what you're saying, and that's what's happening here with Moses and Aaron. Next week, we're going to look at their return to Egypt and this throwdown with Pharaoh, and it'll lead us into the plagues and a pretty exciting time in Exodus. So let's pray and be dismissed. Lord, uh, I'm thankful that you're so incredibly merciful. I'm thankful that you rescue us, that you redeem us for good purposes. I'm thankful that for those who have redemption in Christ, we are not wallowing in the sin without help without rescue. Lord, I'm very aware that um, the flesh and the spirit are against each other to keep the other from doing what it wants, and that those who are in the flesh, in fact, cannot please God. And I know that it's a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. And I know that the devil is like a roaring lion or a prowling lion waiting to just pounce. And um, that just makes us utterly dependent upon you. Lord, I'm thankful that you speak to us from your word. I'm thankful that you bring people into our lives to speak the word to us so as to remind us of your promises and your covenant and the work that you've always been doing and the work that you're doing and the work that you're going to accomplish. Lord, ultimately, we eagerly anticipate the return of our Lord. We eagerly anticipate our salvation. I'm thankful for the, the canon of Scripture that, that we have here that shows us how you worked mightily uh, 
for Israel when Israel had no idea. All they knew was slavery. I mean, that final generation was born into slavery and oppression and bitter conditions, and that's all they knew. And you're about to deliver them. And there was work going on that they didn't even know about that you were doing over with Jethro's flocks and Moses, who was shepherding. Lord, I'm thankful that you appeared to Moses in a burning bush. I'm thankful that in a like manner you've done the same with us. I pray that we would be ever mindful of the holiness that is very real uh, with your presence. I pray that we would act and, and speak and respond in, in an appropriate manner. pray that we would always give a reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. And I pray against bitterness in the body. I pray against anger. I pray uh, against um, spite. Lord, let us speak truth and let us not just briefly at moments depend upon the Spirit, but as we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become weary of doing good. We love you, Lord, and we submit to you and pray that you would use us as you see fit, just as you did with Moses and Aaron. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.